A good advice in life is to begin with the end in mind. If you know where you are heading, you know what you are doing. If you agree, then today's book review is for you. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I'm reviewing Revelation and the End of All Things by Craig R. Kester. Uh, this is the second edition, which was published in 2018 by Ertmans Publishing. It's priced at uh, $9.99 in Amazon Kindle, but it's free in Logos for January and only January. Revelation. How would you describe the last book of the Bible? Puzzling? Mysterious? Scary? If so, you are not alone. Kester quotes a famous theologian who said that Revelation was, quote, neither apostolic nor prophetic, end quote. This famous historical figure also said that he could, quote, in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. He also said that, quote, Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Wow. And, and in his conclusion, this man advised, I quote, advised people to stick to the biblical books that present Christ clearly, end quote. Who dares to speak against Holy Scripture? Why, this man is none other than Martin Luther. And who dares to smear such a great man? Why, he is none other than Craig R. Kester, a professor at Luther Seminary, who has written commentaries on Hebrews and Revelation for the Anchor Yale Commentary Series. He was also involved in the Lutheran World Federation's project on the Bible in the life of the Lutheran Communion from 2011 to 2016. So he is uh, a Lutheran by faith and he is a Lutheran by, um, by vocation as a, as a professor at the seminary. So Martin Luther is known for his over-the-top language, but what provoked his outrageous comments against Revelation? Kester explains that in 1521, there were three radical preachers who were stirring up trouble by proclaiming the imminent end of the world. So by warning people to stick to the biblical books that present Christ clearly, Martin Luther was protecting Christians from uh, false teachers. Because to follow a wrong interpretation of Revelation can be dangerous. Kester gives three examples in the first chapter. The first group, uh, let's see whether you can guess who these, uh, these groups are. The first group predicted Christ's return in March 21st, 1843. Then they revised it to March 21st, 1844. And they revised it again to October 22nd, 1844. Uh, by that time, they then argued that Christ did indeed return, but he returned invisibly to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. And this group is the Seventh-day Adventist. The second group, uh, again, let's see whether you know who this group is, uh, predicted Christ's return in 1874, and they revised it to 1914. They also thought that uh, 144,000 saints will have a special status, and they show that this is true by citing Revelation passages. This group is, of course, the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, the third group um, 
is a bit new to me. I'm not familiar so much with their teaching, so this was an interesting read. The third group uh, attempted to gather 144,000 people, as you know, they are the special people, to greet the arrival of God's kingdom, which was prophesied to happen on April 22, 1959, when the date passed without God's kingdom appearing. Uh, Vernon Howell, who later called himself David Koresh, took over the remaining members of this group. And uh, let us uh, listen to how uh, Kester uh, describes this teaching from in this book. I quote, Since Isaiah 45 verse 1 calls Cyrus, or Koresh, God's anointed one, uh, David Koresh argued that many New Testament references to the Christ refer to a latter-day warrior rather than to Jesus. For example, he insisted that the lamb who would break the seals on the scroll that contained God's plan for the ages was not Jesus, but Koresh himself. He also claimed to be the conqueror on the white horse that appeared when the first seal was broken. Like Cyrus before him, Koresh envisioned himself as the adversary of Babylon, the term he used for federal agents and other outsiders. End quote. So you can see how dangerous it can be uh, when revelation is uh, misinterpreted, as you can tell from the three examples of the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah Witnesses, and David Koresh. Uh, we see that Martin Luther's over-the-top warnings actually seem prudent, considering that many lives were broken, uh, or, or in this case, uh, David Koresh's case, they were killed uh, for their false belief. Um, but that's not all Luther had to say about Revelation. Luther, in his commentary on Revelation, offers one significant insight, uh, which is that Revelation is a message of warning and promise. Throughout this book, Kester will take Luther's cue on this to show that indeed Revelation is a message of warning and promise. If you know nothing about interpreting Revelation, the first chapter is a must-read. Here, Kester traces the history of interpreting Revelation from the early church fathers onwards. Notable names include Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Montanus, Jerome, uh, Martin Luther, which you heard earlier, uh, John Calvin, and also uh, what we mentioned, the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah Witnesses, David Koresh, how they interpreted uh, Revelation. He also goes through uh, post-millennialists, uh, pre-millennialists, and more. From this um, big sweep through history, Kester highlights what he sees as important threads and brings them together for his book. For example, one of those threads is Revelation is not to be read as a chronological straight line. It is cyclical, meaning the same ideas are repeated in different ways. And you see this uh, being demonstrated in Kester's uh, chapters. Okay? Each chapter refers to a cycle. Another thing that he writes is, uh, which is a central argument he makes, is that Revelation is not a code book for 22nd century Christians to try to figure out what are the divine secrets of current or future events. Kester rejects a futuristic interpretation and instead holds a historical uh, and timeless interpretation of Revelation. You say... Okay, some of you may say, why don't we just take a literal interpretation? 
And the funny thing is, <laughs> everyone says that they are taking a literal interpretation. Premillennialists say Revelation literally, literally shows that the world will get worse, and so Christians must heed the warnings and prepare for it. Postmillennialists say Revelation literally shows that the world will get better. And so Christians must heed the promises and work towards it. Our millennialists say we must take Revelation as it is written literally. <laughs> and it is literally a revelation, and second, a prophecy, and third, a letter. You see, many end times debates start at Revelation 20 which is the Millennial Kingdom chapter, which is where we got the pre-millennialists, the post-millennialists, and the amillennialists. So uh, people interpret the rest of Revelation based on their view on the Millennial Kingdom. Kester, on the other hand, uh, tells us, asks us to read Revelation not starting from Revelation 20, but from the first three chapters of Revelation. And Doing so means reading it as a letter to the seven churches. Because you see, when we advance further into the book and get buffeted by the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of wrath, the creatures with faces resembling a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and so on, Kester, our steadfast guide, will remind us uh, through his book, that all these visions were written as a message of promise and warning to the seven churches as they confront assimilation, persecution, and complacency. That's what the seven letters was about. And what they face in their time, we also face in our time. Thus, the message of promise and warning, which historically applies to them, is nevertheless timeless for all Christians. So that's the way he puts forward this book and how he approaches the interpretation of Revelation. In the start of a chapter, before he begins his commentary, there is a picture of a circle, or a, of a cycle to be precise. So when he comments on Revelation 1 to 3, okay, which is the first chapter, the picture is of one cycle. In the next chapter, there is a picture of two cycles, and it continues this pattern. Now, what I appreciate is he doesn't just tell us there is this cyclical structure in the book, which is something we can learn from an outline. Okay, So just be an outline, you can get it. What Kester does is, and he does it so well, is to show how the cycles connect to each other. For example, at the start of chapter 3, he writes, I quote, at the, As the previous cycle concluded, Christ stood knocking at the door, waiting for the Christian community to open to him. But before readers can respond, a new cycle begins as John is shown a door that already stands open. The contrast is provocative. As Christ asked the community to open their door to him, he opens heaven's door to them through John's prose. End quote. By showing the connection between cycles, by the time we reach the 
the final chapter, which is the sixth and final cycle of visions, we are persuaded by Kester's conclusion. Let me quote from him. The peculiar cyclical structure of Revelation, which we have followed throughout this book, directs attention to God and the Lamb as the end of all things. By taking readers through a dizzying spiral of visions, Revelation helps to undercut the reader's confidence that they can know the steps by which future events will unfold. Those who find a kind of security in knowing where they are on God's timeline subtly fall prey to a false faith because God keeps the secrets of His coming hidden from human eyes. Uh, citing Matthew 24 verse 36. Therefore, the kaleidoscopic changes in images that overlap with each other and convey similar messages in multiple guises actually help to show readers the limits of their own abilities to determine where they are in time. As revelations spirals unsettle readers, however, they repeatedly bring readers back to the presence of God and the Lamb, who are worthy of the reader's trust. And here he cites all the various cycles that show this uh, return to the presence of God and the Lamb. Now, sometimes commentaries ask a lot from the readers. They ask that you know uh, Hebrew, Greek, ancient history, literature, but Kester here makes no such demands. He shows us that there is a cycle simply by putting the Bible verses together. And so if you follow the evidence, you will reach the same conclusions. So this book is very easy to read for the non-expert. And uh, normally, okay, normally, if you pick up a commentary on Revelation, it's, <laughs> it's because you want to know what the symbol means. You are confused by something you just read. For example, let me read from Revelation 5, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. End quote. Uh, Christians understand the Lamb to symbolically refer to Jesus Christ. Nobody takes this verse to mean a literal Lamb, <laughs> okay, a literal anonymous Lamb that you get from the, from the sheep pen with seven horns and seven eyes. So as we read this, we wonder what do the seven horns and seven eyes mean? So we take a commentary and the one we are reading is Kester's and then we open it up and then we get a bit disappointed. To answer your question, what do the seven horns and seven eyes mean? Kester just tells us that the horn is a symbol of power. He asks us to read Psalm 132 verse 17. And the number seven refers to God's sevenfold spirit. Isaiah 11 verse 1 to 3 describes it. And that's it. You don't get any more details on the seven horns and seven eyes. But what Kester lacks in detailed exposition, he more than compensates with big picture exposition. Even, even though he does explain who are the 144,000 redeemed, the, the woman who gives birth, the Michael and the dragon, the two beasts, the great harlot and, and Babylon and so on. He, he does explain all those symbols, but he always um, tackles the question of what the symbol means in light of the whole book of Revelation. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. For example, in his uh, comments on the lamb who was slain, the verse that, we, that I read just now, 
Caster, instead of going uh, drilling deep into the horn and the eyes and the seven eyes, he poses a different question. He writes, This scene is a good place to ask again why Revelation communicates through word pictures rather than in a more direct way. End quote. So you notice that by asking this question, this general question, why word pictures? Okay, why word pictures? The answer you get will help you grasp the entire book. This book, which is just full of word pictures. So that's what I mean by he he is more interested in in answering questions which help you interpret the entire book. So let us hear, all right? Let us hear. I like this answer. Let us hear his answer on why a lamb. I quote, In this single vivid image of the lamb, John brings together multiple dimensions of meaning, vulnerability, sacrificial death, and deliverance. As noted earlier, the imagery also appeals to the emotions and the will by evoking sympathy and a willingness to identify with the one whom the lamb represents. By juxtaposing the images of a lion and a lamb, John portrays the suffering and death of Jesus as an act of power, the power of redemptive self-giving, which accomplishes God's purposes. The widespread use of the lamb image in Christian art, music, and worship attests to its ability to capture the imagination. End quote. Now, this, to me, is a brilliant answer. I mean, it's very condensed, but it has lots of things inside. It has the theological, the emotional. It gives the context about the lion and the lamb. I mean, haven't you wondered how can Jesus be a lion and a lamb at the same time? So he explains that also. And he also had the practical about the lamb in art. Yeah, we have paintings, uh, music, and worship. So he a very nice, condensed answer about why a lamb, okay? So, and in doing so, he explains why uh, uh, it's being conveyed using word pictures. Another example, okay, instead of a lamb, let's look at the beast from the sea, which we find in Revelations 13. Now, instead of trying to identify who are the ten horns and the seven heads, are they Roman emperors, are they the United Nations, Kester contrasts the lamb who was slain against the beast from the sea. Okay, so what we read is now about the lamb and, and the beast. So he, he comments, I quote, Many of the beast features are hideous distortions of those of the lamb. Christians believe that the God enthroned in heaven sent Christ into the world as the lamb who suffered and died for others. In a perverse counterpart to this story, the devil who is kicked out of heaven sends a beast into the world to make others suffer and die. In previous chapters, readers learned that the Lamb shares the power, the throne, and the authority of God. Now, they learn that the beast shares the power, the throne, and the authority of Satan the dragon. Castor later concludes that the beast exemplifies the threats that confront the people of God in many generations. And in doing so, do you hear the clash in the interpretative approach? The clash between the futuristic versus the timeless approach? The futuristic approach tries to map the beast to someone we have to watch out for. And uh, that futuristic approach is a very common way of reading Revelation. 
which boggles the mind, which confuses many people as they try to see who is this, what is being spoken of. And so that approach is something that Kester rejects. In contrast, uh, he offers the timeless approach, which warns us to watch out for uh, against assimilation, persecution, and complacency. Uh, remember, these are the problems that has historically affected the seven churches, which is the interpretative lens we use to, to understand Revelation, okay, the letter to the seven churches. And the, and the problems they face are the same problems we also face. Thus, if you understand that, the beast is then a timeless symbol of persecution a timeless symbol that applies in whichever century you're in and it applies to us today, it applies to Christians a thousand years ago, it applies to Christians a thousand years later. Okay? And, uh, well, let's, let's look at one more insight. Okay? One more insight. And in keeping with what Martin Luther said is the purpose of Revelation, let's now look at a promise instead of a warning. In Revelation 21, John speaks of the new city the new Jerusalem. Uh, let me read from verse 21, verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. End quote. Um, if the length, width and height are equal, then mathematically this city is a perfect cube. Also, 12,000 stadia is 1,380 miles or 2,220 kilometers. Now, if we just look at the height, the tallest building in the world right now is not even one kilometer high. It is barely half a mile high. So, imagine the scale. The mind resists the idea of a cubic city. And perhaps resistance is futile. Futile, maybe, because the numbers and dimensions point to something else instead of an architectural wonder. Kester asserts that the cubic shape points to the holy city as a sanctuary. And did you know that the inner chambers of the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies, it is a cubic space? Let me read from 1 Kings 6 verse 20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. Now, I bet most of us did not realize that when we read that thing, that it would actually have significance when we read Revelation. <laughs> most of us just glaze through whenever we read all these uh, dimensions and measurements. So, uh, what we are saying here is that instead of trying to visualize a cubic holy city, an, an architectural wonder, which, by the way, is more than 2,000 times taller than our tallest building today, and try to, try to imagine how would that look like and how would it even be constructed. And I, I don't want to dismiss those who say that it is possible that God can do wonders. He's the God of wonders. So I'm not going to make that argument that it's not possible for this thing to physically appear. What I am saying, what I am saying is that God did not... Uh, put forward a, uh, a giant sphere or a giant pyramid or a giant cylinder. God put forward a giant cube. And the cube has meaning because of the relationship 
with the Holy of Holies. And I suggest that taking that direction in understanding, so relating the New Jerusalem with the Holy of Holies, probably yields more fruit and more wonder for the, for the Christian than the architectural side of things. Okay? So, um, having shared some insights, and there are many more from this book, and uh, some you may agree and some which you may disagree. So, for example, one thing that I kind of disagreed with, but he doesn't spend too much time on it, is uh, he, um, Kester rejects the idea that the Apostle John wrote uh, Revelation, uh, which goes against, I would say, the traditional uh, idea of who the authorship or who the author is. He just says that this is John of Patmos, which is uh, just some, some guy called John. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. So there are some things we agree, some things we don't, and that is normal for any book that we read. Um, now, who is this book for? When it comes to interpreting Revelation, I suggest that there are three books, three groups, three groups of people. The first group is so intimidated by Revelation that they avoid reading it. Don't ask me to read it. I just don't want to read it. It's such a hard book. I don't understand it. I'll just skip it because there are 65 other books for me to read and uh, I have a better chance of understanding them. Um, <laughs> now, for the longest time, I was a member of this group. Then there is the second group, and there are those who are cocksure that they have nailed the interpretation of Revelation using, obviously, obviously, the correct biblical approach. And nothing could convince them, nothing would convince them that they are wrong. <laughs> Even if they stood before the great white throne, surrounded by the angelic hosts, they would probably tell the Lord Jesus that everything looks great and all, but the movie, I mean, the outcome is different from the book. Mm. <laughs> and between uh, these two extremes, between those who are so scared and those who are so sure, are people who are timidly exploring Revelation to learn Old Testament, uh, trying to learn Old Testament allusions because Revelation is just full of Old Testament uh, um, allusions and also trying to learn all these theological categories like eschatology, apocalyptic literature and all these uh, millennialism uh, schools of thought. So they're just trying to fumble around and learn how to read Revelation and they, they would appreciate any help they can get. Now, this book has something for all three groups. For the first group, the Scary Cats, uh, this book gives you the satisfaction that you can understand the revelation. Okay? You can understand it. And I don't know how to impress upon you how wonderful it, a feeling this is uh, to understand a book that is so impenetra impenetrable for so long. And uh, for those, and I wish I read this book earlier, for those who feel lost reading Revelation, Kester basically offers a map. He offers a cyclical structure that will help you make sense of all the visions, okay, and how to link them through. Now, for the second group, those who are confident students of Revelation, who have their own positions, Kester will not change your mind. Uh, he spends more time explaining why he is right and very little time explaining why you are wrong, uh, even though he does believe you are wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, after you read this book, you will gain a clearer and better understanding of one more interpretation 
or to paraphrase one of R.C. Sproul's jokes, you will have two interpretations. One is yours, and the other is God's. <laughs> now, joking aside, when Christians come together to discuss about the end times, we often lose sight of what we agree about the end times. We always argue about the details. Um, Kester um, tells us that Revelation begins and ends with God and the Lamb. Don't you agree? Yes, you do. Kester uh, also tells us that Revelation functions to offer promise and warnings to Christians, which you also agree. So while many may disagree with the details or even what it means to take a literal interpretation, there is still far more in this book that unites us than separates us in this uh, Revelation debate. And I think uh, reading this book would help build that unity. Now, for the third group, and my earlier comments uh, obviously still apply, but I add another one. Because you're still exploring, so I want, to I want to just tell you that we don't like being unsure of anything, and um, because being unsure makes us uncomfortable. We seem to be wishy-washy, uh, sitting on the fence, and we don't like that. And because of that, we are tempted to rush into the first position that makes sense to us. So if you're still exploring and you're not familiar with the other positions yet, I ask that you don't uh, firm up on any position. Don't fight tooth and nail for any position, okay? Um, at least wait until you understand why other Bible-honoring Christians hold to different positions. Okay, that's my advice to you. I also have one final reflection that hopefully might tip the balance that would get you to read this book. I don't know about you, but the Revelation sermons I've heard all came as short series. For example, I, I attended a conference where Tim Keller preached a series on the seven churches. So that was one series on the seven, the letters to the seven churches. I remember a while back, my pastor preaching a short series on the seven seals. So I, I mean, naturally, it would be seven sermons for the seven seals. Now, when you consider what Revelation is, with all the psychedelic colors and noise and smoke and mirrors and all, it's understandable why it's offered as a short series rather than preach from Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. Um, Maybe there's a limit to what the preacher can offer, or maybe there's a limit to what the congregation can take. <laughs> um, so th those are my thoughts, and I understand that my experience could be different from yours. But what I'm saying is, if you're looking for a book that gives you a clear structure to follow for the entire book, not just the bits in between, and, it ex and a book that explains the relationships between those cycles, those, those uh, um, uh, chapters in Revelation, okay? I mean, like we said just now, the lamb and the beast was a relationship between the two. And then this book can explain a way that you can get it. You don't need a specialized knowledge or expertise. And at the same time, stirs you, stirs you with a timeless message of promise and warning. If you are looking for a book like that, then this is the book to get. I wholeheartedly recommend uh, this book. 
This is a Reading and Readers review of Revelation and the End of All Things by Craig R. Kester. It's available now for free from Logos for this month and this month only. As regular listeners would know, Logos is not the only one with a free Book of the Month program. Faith Life has one. The next book I will review is from Faith Life's free Book of the Month. The title is Sunsets, Reflections for Life's Final Journey by Deborah Howard. And I'm looking forward to reading this book and reviewing it. Let me read the description. Because, I quote, because one death touches many lives, it is important for both those who are dying and those who love them to be prepared for the pain and grief that accompany it. Here, Deborah Howard shares words of comfort and encouragement for everyone coping with suffering and death. Her compassion, firm faith in Christ, and years of working as a hospice nurse create a uniquely sensitive, experiential, and biblical volume. Above all, she emphasizes that there is a light that cuts through death's dark shadow. That light is Jesus Christ, and He offers hope and comfort to all who are facing life's final journey. End quote. I look forward to sharing my review of this book with you in two weeks' time. So see you then. Thank you for listening.